Well, what is the proper amount of justice for each of the horrendously wicked crimes perpetrated upon the Jews during World War II? Take Ante Pavlik, whose Croatian regime murdered hundreds of thousands of Serbs, Jews, and Romani people in the war. Who can say how much justice and how much mercy he's due? Take Dr. Joseph Mengele, whose cruel experiments on the Jews in the concentration camps are the stuff of nightmares. What human's going to make the call on the exact amount of justice he deserves? Or take Adolf Eichmann, Adolf Hitler's architect of the Holocaust. Who has the knowledge and the perspective to dispense righteous justice and vengeance that he has coming? None of us know, do we? There's a few deeper, more difficult questions that we might want to ask this morning as well. Why did Argentina, for example, welcome hundreds, if not thousands, of these Nazi war criminals into their country who were fleeing the Nuremberg trials? Why on earth would the president of Argentina, Juan Perón, accept these men with open arms, knowing full well who they were, without the slightest intention of seeing any justice brought forth? Would any of us have the faintest notion of where to begin to administer justice to these people? And I think finally, the ultimate question we need to ask is, is it enough for us to believe that one day God will administer the exact amount of justice, mercy, and vengeance for every situation, for every individual, and do it perfectly? Can we trust that? Well, we're in Psalm 82 this morning, and we're going to see that the only way that true justice can ever be meted out is when it's balanced by the other attributes of God's goodness. So let me begin to read. We're in Psalm uh, 82, a Psalm of Asaph, verses 1 and 2. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Salah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. And the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's Son of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations." One of the ways you can tell that the meaning of a biblical passage is potentially troubling 
is the degree to which Bible translators differ in their translations. If you were to go to Bible Hub, by the way, a great source online, you'd notice immediately that the first verse of Psalm 82 is translated in many different ways, most of them pretty unclear. For example, the English Standard Version says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. The New Living Translation says, God presides over heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. The Contemporary English Version says, When all the other gods have come together, the Lord God judges them and says, The Net Bible, the New English Translation, says, A Psalm of Asaph, God stands in the assembly of El. In the midst of the gods, he renders judgment. And the American Standard Version says, God stands in the congregation of God. He judges among the gods. And what you discover is that the various translators of Psalm 82 can't really agree on the definition of two Hebrew words, Elohim and El, both of which have a wide range of meanings, and we're going to look at where they appear in the text. And because these two words have a wide range of meanings, the translation of verse 6, where it says, I said you are gods, becomes particularly difficult. And I'll show you in a moment why these two words are difficult to translate and difficult to define. But first, let me remind you that all words in every language have fields of meaning. The author's intended meaning can only be understood within the context that it appears in. So let me give you an example. If I asked you to define the word mole. So... You need to know the context of how that word is used to tell me what the word means. It could be a small burrowing mammal like a gopher. It could be a dark spot of pigmentation on your skin. It could be a measurement in chemistry of the amount of a particular substance. So let me show you the position of these two words Elohim and El within the verses of Psalm 82 and you'll understand the problem better. So in verse 1, it says, Elohim has taken his place in the El. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. Well, Elohim is made up of the word El plus the Hebrew plural ending Ohim. El is just the generic name in the Semitic languages for the generic idea of God. And the Hebrews came along and they took that generic name El and they added attribute names of the real true God of Israel to the word El. And so they came up with words like El Elyon, God Most High, El Shaddai, God Almighty, El Roy, God Who Sees, El Olam, Everlasting God. Now Elohim is plural in form, but it can be singular or plural in its context. So in verse 1, the first use of Elohim is used with the singular nouns his and hers. Can you put that back up? But the second Elohim in verse 1 infers a plural idea. 
in the midst of the Elohim. So it would be hard to make sense of God holding judgment in the midst of himself. And then verses 2 through 5 are pretty straightforward. You can navigate their meaning pretty easily. That's not really an issue in translation here. And then verses 6 through 7, it says, I said you are Elohim, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. And so in verses 6 and 7, all the underlying words are second person plurals. You, sons, all of you, you shall die, fall is a second plural verb, all in second plural. And then in verse 8, it returns to a singular again. Arise, O Elohim, the true God of Israel, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And so in verse 8, it's back to using the singular you again. So you can see the difficulty in trying to establish who is who in Psalm 82. So let me just recap what I just said. So in Psalm 82, twice Elohim refers to the singular one true God of Israel in verse 1 and 8. And twice it refers to the plural of Elohim in verses 1 and 6, which has a number of different possible interpretations. Both El and Elohim are variously translated. For example, Elohim is translated this way in the Bible. God, the true God of Israel, gods, idols, rulers, judges, divine ones, superhuman beings, including gods, spirits, and angels, and goddesses. And often within the immediate context, the word Elohim can be translated differently. This just lends to the confusion in determining the meaning of the word. Now, El also has fields of meaning. That's variously translated as God, mighty men of status, angels, the gods of foreign nations, the supreme God, idols, mighty things in nature, strength, and power. So which translation is best for Psalm 82 is the question. And so to understand the author's intent, we need to figure out what the author meant when he used the words Elohim and El in Psalm 82. Now there is a preferred translation. The New American Standard Bible really has the best translation, I think. It says, God takes his stand in his own congregation he judges in the midst of the rulers. And so the true sense is this assembly of the mighty, the El, refers to the judges and rulers that God has put in positions of authority, who are being summoned and presided over by God in his capacity as the almighty ruler. And so then in verse 1, we see Asaph's statement of the true and eternal God's character. And he says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And he's simply saying there, I think, that God has stationed himself as a pillar in the seat of power. Other Elohims, little gods, anywhere that have his power and his authority. He's ruling over and acting as judge over this assembly of the judges and rulers in Israel 
that he has sanctioned with his power, with the power to act as his authority in administering the law. And so Asaph is making the distinction that God judges with absolute justice in this psalm, not as the rulers and judges who wickedly administer justice among the Israelites. And then in verses 2 through 4, we have Asaph's plea on God's behalf to the rulers and judges. And he asks the question, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Salah. Take a musical pause, lift that question up to God, and consider that question. And so we see in Psalm 82, it's pointing us to one particular attribute of God, his justice. And it's going to show us that God dispenses justice with impartiality and without bias. And in God's justice, everyone will receive exactly what they deserve. So then he says, in four points below that, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So I'm going to take an opportunity here to kind of break away from the text for a minute, and I want to have us consider a couple of different questions so we get a really good understanding of what's going on here. But we'll come back to the text shortly. So we want to consider this question. What does it really mean for God to be just? We find the attribute of God's justice, by the way, falling theologically under the general category of God's goodness, which includes his holiness, his moral uprightness, his righteousness, his genuineness, his truthfulness, and his faithfulness, his love and mercy, and his benevolence. And then I want to remind you what we're looking for here. The only way that true justice can ever be meted out is when it's balanced by the other attributes of God's goodness. And Scripture has much to say regarding God's justice and how it is tempered by his other attributes. Let me give you a couple of examples. Deuteronomy 32 for I pro proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Here's another one. As for the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He is excellent in power in judgment and abundant justice. He does not oppress, therefore men fear him. He shows no partiality to any who are wise of heart. Job 37. And finally, Psalm 89 that we saw this morning. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. So don't miss this. In order for true righteousness and justice to be administered properly among the people, justice must be balanced by the other attributes of God's goodness. Mercy and truth, righteousness, moral uprightness, goodness. The idea of justice, then, isn't only handing out vengeance 
and judgment for people who are oppressive and wicked. Nor does it mean that justice is offering charitable handouts to the vulnerable. Because that isn't necessarily giving them what they they justly deserve in all fairness. The ESV translates verse 3, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Elsewhere that's translated as defend the weak and the fatherless. And so justice simply means judge the poor and the fatherless fairly. Without bias, without favoritism. Give them what they justly deserve. So let me give you an example of how the Torah approaches justice differently than the other Semitic peoples. In some Near Eastern law codes, if an ox gores a man to death who is wealthy enough to own property, no claim can be made against the owner of the ox. Sometimes that happens and it's no one's fault, is the idea, I think. If the ox habitually gores people, then the owner must pay a modest fine. But in God's sense of justice, according to the Torah and his law, if an ox gores any man or woman to death, the ox must be killed, and it must not be eaten, because no benefit of any kind should be gained from its just killing. Furthermore, if the ox is in the habit of goring, then the owner can be put to death. So the distinction is that in God's law, all of human life is valued equally. And poor men and women, widows, strangers, orphans, are valued as much as anyone else. So let me consider another thing as we proceed here. Why administering the law alone can't bring true justice? So the purpose of God's justice as it interacts with society is to promote the well-being and the equality of all humanity. God's justice must treat everyone equally. And history shows that the weak, the fatherless, widows, the impoverished, Strangers are most likely to be victimized by partial and unjust wicked rulers, which is why these groups are highlighted in Psalm 82. And so there's a legal issue behind Psalm 82, and that's when human beings govern, they can't administer justice free from favoritism or free from decisions that stem from a personal self-interest or a bias. But most importantly, human beings can't administer justice with the merciful love with which God administers justice. When human beings administer justice from a strict legal advantage, that justice falls into the legal category known in Latin as summum ius summa injuria. You know, summa cum laude, right? The highest lauding. And ius was just... Imagine the J there. So the highest justice gives the highest injury. And so this maxim means that extreme justice is likely to result in extreme injustice. So the sense is when we try to carry out the excessive rigors of the law to its extreme, we can't do it without the danger of doing injustice. 
because extreme right may produce extreme wrong. That's the sense of that Latin phrase. And it means that attempting to be just by using the law by itself can become the center of the gravest injustice, even when it's applied in the name of justice itself. And so that's the problem with how the rulers are administering justice in Psalm 82. It's missing the complement and the balance of God's mercy and love to make it absolutely morally right and free from any sense of injustice. So justice must be complemented, complemented, completed by love, and in particular by merciful love, God's chesed. If merciful love does not complement the law, if we look to the law alone for justice, then the law will no longer serve justice. That's the idea. That's why we fault in this as humans. Let me give you a brief example. You remember the, this principle from the Sermon on the Mount, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in the Sermon on the Mount. This provision of the Torah of the Jewish law was originally intended for good. It helped bring about justice by requiring that punishment fit the crime. It had the intent of restraining the all-too-human and unjust desire for vengeance. By the time Jesus was walking on earth, this provision of the law had come to be used to demand punishment when mercy was called for. That's what his point was in the Sermon on the Mount. So in all of this, we lack sufficient understanding of the whole of the situation and can tend to be defective at administering the law properly. We can't find the perfect medium, the middle course between too much cruelty and too much negligence that's fair and just towards everyone. We are either too rigorous and too rigid in trying to exact the boundaries of justice upon every occasion, or we're too thoughtless and negligent about how justice should be meted out to affect each party fairly. If we administer the law with a little too much severity, it becomes cruelty. And if we administer the law with too much indulgence towards someone, it can confirm them in their wickedness. And this is why the psalmist is seeking at the end here God's justice. Because God's justice is perfectly just. He has a perfect understanding of every situation. He's not in the darkness about any aspect of anything. He acts at all times with justice and right conduct toward his creatures. And the scriptures affirm that God is absolutely just in every instance. Now, it's because God is righteous and faithful, truthful, upright, and just, and completely impartial that he hates to see his people oppressed by the wicked, treated violently and unfairly, treated ruthlessly, with treachery and lied to and deceived. Those are all foreign to the idea of true justice. And he hates the way the wicked treat the vulnerable because of the injustices they reveal. He hates those things because they lead to partiality in judgment. 
They lead to dishonest trade dealings. They lead to bribes and robbery, murder and oppression and vicious words. But God's justice is also challenging to what we believe justice should look like. Because we're not God. In fact, we're not even little gods either. Let me give you an example of why we might have a hard time grasping God's justice. You remember Psalm 115.3, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135.6-8 gives us the other half of that. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. So whatever he desires to do, he does. And whatever he does pleases him. And so then Psalm 135, 6-8 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. And then in verse 8 of Psalm 135, it says, He destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast. He desired to destroy the firstborn of Egypt, And when he did, it pleased him. And that demonstrated his justice and his righteousness and his goodness and his mercy. And some of you are probably thinking, "Mm, not so much mercy. Then the very next psalm, just in case we're doubting that that was a merciful call, the very next psalm, 136, is that psalm that keeps repeating the phrase, for his mercy endures forever. And this is how it begins. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Elohim of Elohims, for his hesed endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Adonai of Adonais, for his loving mercy endures forever. And then in verse 10 it says, To him who struck down Egypt and their firstborn, for his mercy endures forever. What? Verse 15 says, And he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his mercy endures forever. What? Verse 18, To him who struck down great kings and slew famous kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endures forever. What? Do you see how biblically his mercy and his righteousness and his justice and his goodness all work together when he desires to do what he does? And whatever he does in his justice and righteousness and mercy, that pleases him. Every judgment that God executes in governing this world displays his perfect justice and righteousness. Whether his ways deliver you or vindicate you or condemn you or punish you, they are always perfect, just, righteous, and upright. Here's the clincher. No one is exempt from God's justice, and he may with his strictest holiness or his love, or his hate, choose to elect some, and to save some, and to destroy some of his creatures. Think 
Nadab, Abihu, Uzzah, Ananias, Sapphira, according to his own free pleasure and sovereign purpose. Remembering God is incapable of being unjust, no matter what he does. So here's a final question for us. How then can God's choice to be gracious to some and not to all ever be considered just? Grace, then, is the very opposite of justice. Strict justice shows no favor and knows no mercy. Justice requires that everyone should receive exactly what they are due. God's justice is inflexible. His justice is demanded. That's why there's the pronouncement of this in his law, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. No deviation from it can be made, for Jehovah has expressly declared that he will by no means clear the guilty. So grace is the reverse of justice. Grace bestows on sinners what they are not entitled to, what they don't deserve. It's pure charity. Grace is something for nothing. Justice is granting to people exactly what they deserve. God's justice is principled and without any respect of any particular individual. But listen, anytime God withholds justice, he's giving grace. God is never obligated to be merciful. A holy God is just and merciful, but he's never unjust. So God never punishes an innocent person because he doesn't know how to be unjust. But he does know how to be non-just. Mercy is non-justice. It is not injustice. So I've given you some things to think about there as we come now to back into the text to think about what Asaph is going to conclude for us. So in verse 5, we have Asaph's statements that these rulers lack a foundational ability to discern. He says, they, the El, the divine council, the rulers and judges of Israel, have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So there were two questions that were really troubling me as I came to this passage and began to think about it. For example, why don't they know and understand? And then, is Asaph's expectation really that these judges can accurately judge the way that God does? The difficulty is that Asaph doesn't tell us the reason for this lack of knowledge, this lack of understanding and ignorance among the judges and rulers. He's speaking to them, but all he tells us is that it's lacking. He doesn't say it's because they're in unbelief or they've abandoned God's counsel and his word or they've fallen prey to the power that he's invested in them. But Asaph does make an astounding comment. He says they're unable to discern cognitively with their senses. The word understand comes from the Hebrew 
preposition that means between. Someone who lacks this understanding can discern, cannot discern or distinguish between good and evil in a way that would bring about justice. Like someone who had a genuine, full understanding of every situation. So we're not talking about the IQ level of these rulers and judges or their ability to gather data here to make a reasonable decision. I think Asaph is revealing that there's a deeper problem than IQ and data gathering here. They aren't able to gain right knowledge through the power of right judgment and perceptive insight, which only one with true, perfect knowledge is able to accomplish. And therefore, they can't perceive or mentally comprehend what needs to be done to make the complexities of every circumstance completely right. These rulers can never administer divine justice because they can't discern between right and wrong at the deep, spiritually insightful level that God does. And only God has the discretion to judge rightly the evil thoughts and the evil intentions and the wicked devices of men and the right remedy in dealing with them in an absolute, just, and fair manner. And without God's discretion, insight, full wisdom, and understanding of what constitutes absolute right and wrong in every circumstance, Asaph says that the whole legal system becomes corrupt and it's unstable at its foundation. And then in verses 6 to 7, we have Asaph's reminder to these little Elohims about the reality of their Elohimness. It says, I said you are God's Son of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. He said you are Elohims, but they're little gods only in this sense. That God has given them his power and his authority and his name, Elohim. And he says, you are indeed my children. You do my work. You represent me. But you get the impression that these rulers who are sanctioned by God to rule according to his word are infatuated with their position of authority. They're blinded by their pride, perhaps. And Asaph is reminding them of the reality of their Elohimness here. God is declaring judgment against these rulers, these mighty, these El, because they've self-deified as little Elohims and, have, and as sons of the Elohim. It's not that they're actually gods, little Elohims. It's that they have deified themselves as if they were gods, free to judge in any way they wanted to. The reality is they'll never dispense justice the way that Elohim can. Because when he dispenses perfect justice, it's not with a perverted judgment. In spite of the fact that by name and office you are Elohims, you're going to die just like mortals, he says. And you'll be accountable to me for the way that you treat those under you. You're going to fail like one of the princes, despite your self-glorification 
You will die like any other ordinary man, like that of a mortal. You are not a little God in reality. Well, then in verse 8, we have Asaph's closing plea to the true and living God who alone can bring justice. He says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And here Asaph is moving us toward the day that true justice will be perfectly instituted and fine-tuned by all the other perfect attributes of God, pointing us toward the day when all things will be made right. Don't you long for that day? A day when justice will be meted out exactly as it should be by the God who is both merciful and just? Asaph is preparing us to look out, out ahead for the great day that's coming when God's justice is administered fairly to everyone along with his loving kindness. Folks, just remember the summer of 2020. Didn't you sense a dissolution of the foundations of justice? Anarchy reigning throughout the major cities of the United States, chaos, trouble, looting, burning, revolting against sanctioned authority, total, massive destruction of property. Did you get the impression that any rulers or leaders cared whether justice was being administered and enforced appropriately for those behaviors? No! We witnessed the exact opposite of justice. We witnessed injustice. Justice was nowhere to be found. And as the crimes increased, we would have expected justice to finally rouse itself and do what it's supposed to do. And did you notice what happened when justice wasn't administered? Did things get better? No, the chaos and the looting and the burning got worse. No justice meted out, just put wind to the sails of the rebellion. Didn't we witness the absolute failure of people in authority to administer any resemblance of justice for the crimes we were all watching on the news every day? This is what Asaph is calling for. This is Asaph's final plea, then, in light of God's true character that he completely understands. He says, Arise, true God of justice, stand up from your throne with finality on our behalf. Bring that true purpose and prosperity and justice perfected in mercy and loving kindness and righteousness and holiness that only you can bring. We're waiting and we're so ready for you to come. So testify aloud, aloud to who you really are. Bring an end finally to the injustices in this world. That's what he's pleading for. Vindicate those who trust your character. Judge the earth perfectly like only you are able to. All the nations belong to you. Take justice into your own hands Maintain the cause and the rights of the oppressed. You alone are the judge and the ruler and the preserver of life. 
Do this until you inherit all the nations. You remember when I asked at the beginning, why on earth would the president of Argentina, Juan Perón, accept these Nazi criminals with open arms, knowing full well who they were, without the slightest intention of seeing justice served? Well, in 1997, we discovered why they did that. Because Nazi Germany had invested millions of dollars worth of stolen gold and silver and art treasures and jewelry into Argentina's central bank. They got bought out. So what's worse? The crime of stealing millions of dollars from the Jewish people you tortured and murdered? Or the crime of deciding millions of dollars is worth it to be oblivious to the horrific Nazi injustices? Which one is worse? Who can decide which one is worse fairly? What human is fit and qualified to weigh out the exact amount of justice and mercy for each one of those individuals? One Perón wasn't about to trade justice for millions of dollars of shamelessly stolen wealth. When justice is corrupted by men in authority because of their greed and favoritism and their bias, only the God of justice and mercy can make that much injustice right again. Because unlike men, God cannot let up one speck of his righteousness or allow any degree of sentiment or greed or indifference to tarnish his perfect justice. He is the most excellent judge who is without respect of persons. One day that will be fully demonstrated to the world, and that will be a day of horror for some and blessing for others. Let me pray for us. Father, you are mighty and good, holy, and you are just. Father, we pray that as we've encountered these ideas this morning, that our hearts will settle on the truth, that we wait for your judgment and your justice to happen, because that's the only thing that can make injustices in this world right. Father, we long for that day. Help us to be patient and trusting in you and faithful to you as we await that time. In Christ's name, amen.